I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at season two of the Netflix sports series, Breakpoint. If you're one of the players who was in season one and all of a sudden all the others are losing and then everyone's in your ear about the Netflix curse, Netflix curse, Netflix curse, it, 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 it could subconsciously get into your head. Today, we're talking to showrunner Darren Lovell. As some of today's legends reach the twilight of their careers, this is the chance for a new generation to finally claim the spotlight. But after years in the shadows of champions like Williams and Djokovic, who has what it takes to step up and become the number one player in the world? Season two of Netflix's Breakpoint gets up close and personal with the players competing across the globe each week. From career-threatening injuries and emotional heartbreak to triumphant victories and personal moments off the court, viewers will get a behind-the-scenes look at the pressure-tested lives of some of the best tennis players in the world. This is where stars are born, where you're playing for tennis immortality. And I'm joined by showrunner Darren Lovell. Darren, welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So, Darren, documentarians try hard to live outside of the world that their uh, documentary is capturing. And the opening scene of season two is the red carpet party for Breakpoint season one. Let's set aside everything that happened right after that. But bring us back to that moment. What was the reaction to the first look at Breakpoint and its vision? Yeah, thanks. Um, people were really excited about it. We, um, I, I hadn't worked on season one of the show, so I came on um, while Carrie, our showrunner for season one, was finishing off the edit of the of the last five episodes of season one. So I came on as the new showrunner. First tournament was in Melbourne for the Australian Open, uh, landed, and and we had that premiere. So. I was getting lots of pats on the back for work that I hadn't done uh, for for people kind of celebrating season one. And everyone everyone was really happy with it. The feedback was great. We actually, as part of the process, we sit down with the players and we show them their episodes before before it goes out on Netflix to run it by them, see what they think about it, get some feedback. So we had done that. So the players that had taken part, they they kind of knew what was coming. But uh, yeah, everyone was really happy. It was a great, it was a great event to kind of celebrate the launch, heading into the first big tournament of 2023 as well. So you all seem to embrace it. So let's talk about it. At the Australian Open, a lot of the tennis players featured in season one had an early exit from the tournament, and then the world, especially the world online, was saying there was a so-called Netflix curse. How long did that take from being kind of like an online chatter thing to something that people were actually talking about at the Open? Yeah, like, like I said, it was my first um, tournament and it was it was horrifying for me because I came on and wanted to put my mark on the series, film a fantastic tournament, uh, have all of these players and storylines that, that we could track. And, and the way we approached it was... You know, we had this success in season one. A lot of the players um, were happy to feature again in season two. So they're the people that we started filming with. And 
yeah, very quickly people started getting getting knocked out. And I was taking meetings because I it was my first step into into the tennis world to take over the show. So I was having meetings with agents and they were saying, oh, a few of your players seem to uh, be getting knocked out early. What Are you worried? Are you nervous? I said, no, we've still got plenty of players in the draw that we're following. Another day would pass, we'd lose a couple more. And suddenly we were still in the first week and everyone was talking about it. Kyrgios, Tomjanovic, and Bedosa didn't even start the tournament. They all pulled out with injuries ahead of it. And then Matteo Berrettini lost to Andy Murray. Four of the people that were featured on Netflix Breakpoint are already out of the Australian Open. Uh, I was terrified. I was terrified whether we were going to have the start of a second season, whether we were going to be able to deliver something. But luckily we had a few players that, that did make a deeper run and then obviously Arena went the whole way. So um, yeah, I got off the hook with that one. Yeah. I mean, when I say you embraced it, I mean it. You named the episode, <laughs> the Netflix curse. You edited it like a horror movie. There was some glitchy video. I'm just curious, were you at all like nervous laughing at the time? And and also, should I be worried that I'm cursed after this interview? I have to, I'm, I'm concerned. No, I think, I think Arena saved us all. I think Arena <laughs> going and, and winning the whole tournament kind of put the curse, put the curse to bed. Yeah, I was terrified. I was terrified. I was terrified that we weren't going to have uh, any players kind of make a deep run. And and we were trying to change the the approach for, for season two. In season one, each of the episodes centers around one tournament. So for season two, we wanted to break out of that a bit. Often in season ones, you, you need to do that. You're explaining what the sport is. Uh, you're explaining how tournaments work. You have to kind of bed in uh, in a more linear way, I think, to kind of establish yourself in a new sport. For season two, we wanted to break out of that. So we we didn't necessarily need to have an Australian Open episode, but it's the start of the season. So you want to feature it in some way. You want to make sure all the Grand Slams are featured in in the series. Uh, So to consider not having anyone make it deep into the tournament was going to be a a real problem for us. But yeah, yeah, Arena, Arena saved the day. So athletes can be very superstitious, and obviously it's it's really good for some of their careers and profiles to be featured in your series. Um, is there concern that in the you know in the present and the future that athletes might be reticent to be featured in a series like this? I'm just curious what your feedback has been on the ground. Yeah, I think look, everyone understood that that it was quite a nice moment that had caught fire on social media and had people talking. No one ever considered that there is genuinely a curse on on players being in in the series. The players themselves, a few of them were asked in press conferences, what's going on with this curse? They batted it away straight away. They understand that they put enough training and work on the court that something as futile as as just having a camera in the the background isn't going to throw them off their game. They're they're far more kind of professional than that. So no, didn't didn't cause any problems as we move through the rest of the season with any players and and yeah, certainly not not caused any issues since. I mean, I think Nick Kyrgios would even say, you know, it was him who decided to not stretch before that exhibition <laughs> tournament, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> So in all the hype about these players losing, it seems like everyone forgets the point is that only one person can win and everyone is going to be a loser. Everyone else is going to be a loser week after week. Can you talk about that dynamic in tennis that someone can be ranked the number one American or the number three player in the world and yet never have won a major or maybe even never have made it to the semifinals or finals of a major? Yeah, I think tennis, because of that, is one of the toughest sports there are. Like obviously, at Box to Box Films, we do a lot of sports 
uh, documentary series. And tennis is is relentless, and you have to to get used to losing. A lot of the players would say that in their in their interviews that we did. And the players that excel are the ones that learn to deal with the loss quickest and wash it off, dust yourself down, get back on the court the next week because there is another tournament, and that's the one that you could turn into into a victory. You've got to be tough as a tennis player. It's, it's relentless. And they are on to the next tournament every single week. That was one of our challenges was knowing which tournaments to go to with them. But yeah, I think getting used to getting used to losing is really important if you're going to be successful in tennis. You know, it's funny. After watching the final episode of your series, I'm sure I'm not the only person who Googled how much does Arena Sabalenka's racket cost? <laughs> because I was just very curious about like that racket smashing scene. But then she's a winner. I mean, she's doing great. She's somebody who clearly has a very resilient personality and she's a very emotional player. And being emotional is often knocked with tennis players, especially with women tennis players. Do you notice a difference between the way men and women are judged and their uh levels of emotional reactions when they lose versus when they win? Yeah, yeah, I do. I think I think it's almost a given that men can react in a more extreme way. I think there's almost an expectation around it. I've, I've seen a lot about Arena being kind of called, called a tiger. She's got her tiger tattoo on her and she does wear her heart on her sleeve and will allow people to see that emotion. And I think she's commended for that. I think I think she gets a lot of fans for that. And I think being part of the show has shown that kind of softer side to her. Also, the aggression she's got. You kind of really get a sense of her as a well-rounded player. And I think that's why she's attracted uh, a lot of fans as a result. So if we stay with a theme that so much of the sport is mental, last season we saw Maria Sakkari struggle with her composure on the court and then threaten to walk away from tennis when she's off the court. And this season we saw her make a change to her regime. What was that? Yes, yeah, she she brought in a uh, a psychologist this year to work with um, alongside her coach Tom Hill, who's been with her for a really long time. She had a psychologist that she was working with a- across the season. So then I started getting all these panic attacks, and there were matches where I just couldn't breathe. Seems to be maybe feeling the pressure. I thought I was gonna faint, and it wasn't a pleasant feeling. I was in a dark place for six months. I think what one of the things she would say they were working on, I think it's in the episode, is is how to cope with those losses, how you process those losses and not carry them forward. She's absolutely an example of that, where she was learning to process loss, take positives away from loss and not and not dwell on them. And I think, you know, you see that ultimately pay off for her when she when she goes and lifts her first title in, in years. So even there's even a scene where a coach admonishes a trainer, uh, you know, before a match for a player, where like it's like don't talk about how you didn't sleep last night. Just be mindful when you're saying those kind of things. I know it's like it's, you weren't even talking to her, but she can hear you say, "Oh, I'm not going to sleep tonight," and saying those kind of things. She hears that, and like like her subconscious kind of takes that up as well. Like, oh yeah, it's going to be hard to sleep tonight. So just. We don't let her hear that. You know what I mean? Does something like that really make a difference? Does something that small make a difference for a player before going into a match? I think it can. And I think if there's any chance that it can, why rock the boat? Why why risk it? So I think the the job of the teams is to keep their players solely focused on their performance on court and kind of shut out the the noise. And I think certain players are maybe more susceptible to the noise than others. And I think the teams, they try and identify, okay, what do we need to do for our player 
that can keep them focused on their performance on on court and and try and not rock that in any way. And you know, Jason actually says in in that episode, you know, we're not we're not paying attention to all the curse TikTok bullshit. He doesn't want Arena getting her head into any of the curse talk, any distractions. Just wants to keep that singular focus. And I think that just ramped up for her as she moved through the tournament because she had this hoodoo about not being able to get through semi-finals she kept making semi-finals and then couldn't make it into the final it had gone so well for her the tournament so far they just wanted to keep that routine the same and that's the same for a lot of players actually they get they get into their routine and they don't want to change a thing and that that actually for us as program makers is a challenge as well because we have to be consistent it has to be the same team with the same players following them at the same times we can't just dip in and out with some players. We have to be that we're either in or we're not in because they don't want to change their routine halfway through a tournament. So in a lot of sports, there are players who will try to exploit the mental side of the game. We see Daniel Medvedev do all sorts of things to throw off his opponents. Is it unsportsmanlike or is it fair game in a tennis tournament, a multi-million dollar mano a mano enterprise <laughs> to play these kinds of games? Uh, that's a tricky one because I don't play professional tennis, but for me, if I'm playing a game, as long as I'm not breaking the rules, I feel like it's, it's fair, it's fair game. And, and Daniil doesn't break the rules. You have to come up with something new sometimes to surprise your opponent. Tactically, you try to win no matter what. Medvedev's racing off to the toilet, I think. Obviously, he's got to make sure that he's back in time for Zverev to serve next. I think I think even during that match, there's some interview from Daniel and he's explaining it. It's, it's that you use the tools at your disposal to try and, and win a tennis match. And there's fine margins when it when it comes to winning and losing. So anything you can do to to gain an advantage within the rules, I think is um, is fine by me. We're used to seeing a tennis match on a TV shot from a high static camera. And in season one, we saw the game shot like never before. Close-ups, new angles. What were the marching orders this season for the film crews on what kind of visuals to show the audience? Yeah, I think in terms of the, in terms of the tennis coverage for season two, it was more of the same that we, that we saw from, from season one. As I said, I, I came on as the new showrunner for season two. So watching season one as a as a fan, I absolutely loved the way the tennis was covered and I thought it was a, a beautiful series. So yeah, we wanted the team. We had the same series director who directed season one, Martin. He came back for, for season two as well. Um, and so, so in terms of the tennis coverage, we wanted to do the same. What we did have was the benefit of a year on the ground at these tournaments. Season one, it was a brand new world and Martin and the team were figuring out the best way to cover the tennis in in a way that hadn't been seen before, and I think they absolutely nailed it in in season one, and and then and then wanted to push it on a bit more in in season two. But that was knowing your way around a tournament and and where the best vantage points were, and uh, often we'd go into the the press pit for a bit. Some of them are angles you've seen before in tennis, but you've not seen them in this way. So you see them as part of a a replay package where they show you the highlights and they slow it down and they show you a point. We could play some of that in real time and be in, it, be in the pit or over the shoulder of uh, the coach. We were trying to fill in the blanks of the broadcast and also sometimes shoot what you would see in broadcast, but using it in a totally different way. 
I'm curious because season one, no one knew the series was being made. Were, were people aware like, oh, that's Netflix. That's, you know, this is this is for Breakpoint. Yeah, they, they, they were. People people got to know us and, and having been in the world for a year, a lot of our team came back from season one and season two. So they were known faces around the tournaments and and tennis is like a traveling circus. They're traveling, you know, 50 weeks of the year around the world. And, and we'd pitch up in player dining and people would say, oh, they're back again. Like you've chosen this one to come to. We wouldn't go to every tournament. It's impossible. We don't have the ability to go to every single tournament. There's multiple tournaments happening at the same time around the world. But um, yeah, people were aware of us. People enjoyed season one. So, so those kind of access discussions were easier I think for for season two people had responded really well to the first year and and so more people were interested in in being in it for season two and then from a fan perspective uh, there are a lot of cameras around tennis tournaments so we do kind of blend into those there are a few a few situations where people would just ask us outright hey are you are you the break point guys as we were running around um and we'd just give them a little nod and, and keep doing our thing but yeah when it came to the tournaments we blended in with a lot of the other the other teams but the players the agents the coaches they all they all knew knew who we were by now hmm so the broadcast, those camera shots showing the whole match gives you everything you need to know about the drama of, you know, the tennis game, the match, all the points. You have all of these gorgeous shots, but you have to give the viewer the drama of an entire tennis match, sometimes the entire tournament in just a few points. How do you think about editing that? Yeah, it's uh, it could be tricky. They could be tricky to put together, but I think we've we've always approached it that it is story first, and that the tennis should follow. We should be story led with the tennis following, and what that means is we we would sit down with our players and interview them early on in the season, get a sense of what their story could be, and then we're looking for tennis that will help illustrate the points we're trying to make about their story. I think unlike season one, where you would see the tournament kind of tree you'd see you'd see the process of moving through the tournament we were really happy for season two to just drop into a match it could be any random point in the middle of a match we wouldn't have to start with round one then go round two round three it could be a quarter final at Rome Holger Ruda versus Novak Djokovic and Novak could be 40 love up the reason we want to drop into this moment is because Holger Rune is going to then fight back and and take the first set. So for season two, we were more selective in, in the matches and the match footage we wanted to include. And then the first question I would say to the edit teams when they were putting these episodes together is what's the story? Like, what's the story of that point? Or what's the story of this match? Why are we including it? And if they couldn't answer that, it didn't go into it didn't go into an episode. So we'd make those selections of of the point or the match that we would want to show. And then and then it's focusing in even more. If if we've chosen that match, which game do we want to show? Which set do we want to show? And which point do we want to show? And only if it illustrates the story we're trying to tell about that player would it go into the episode. I actually want to ask you about a scene that you captured at the U.S. Open that I, I'm not sure, I, it can't have been planned, I don't think, uh, that's very different than other scenes in the documentary. It's a locker room scene with Tiafo, Shelton, and Goff kind of like working out in the locker room together. This just sort of this very off-the-cuff scene of them kind of like giving each other a little bit of crap in the locker room. I want to play you so bad, dude. I want to play you so bad, dude. 
How long have I been saying this? Yeah, I don't talk to my opponents. I can't let I mean, I'm not yeah. I ain't talking to you. Ben got a better fit than you, Francis. What? The shoes are, are nice, but yeah. everything yeah. else is... Ben? Oh, 100%. This yeah. <laughs> ugly. Bro, you, don't, you don't, show, don't show him some love. Tiafo's obvious little bit, a little bit established, ball, very much up-and-comers. Can you just talk a little bit about that scene and, and what it was like just kind of watching them chat in the locker room, give each other a little crap in the locker room and sort of like watching the tennis on the TV and and seeing their interactions because I found that to be one of the most compelling scenes in the entire series. Yeah, I think they're the magical moments in any of the series that we make and especially this one is where you get the crossover of players that you've been featuring and just real natural moments. But we don't set up any scenes in the show. Like everything is hey, what are you up to? Can we come and hang out at your house and just roll the cameras for a little while and and see what comes of it? But this was, like you say, a real genuine moment of Ben also just finding out that he's going to be facing Francis in in the next round. And just a true kind of friendship between those two. They've been giving, there's the interview with Ben, he talks about how he'd always wanted Francis on Ash and this is it. He was finally getting his moment. He'd been texting him all year, I want you on Ash, I want you on Ash. Finally, he's like 19, right? He's like, finally getting his moment. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, finally getting my shots. But they'd been building it up with each other all, all year. They'd been texting each other. Francis had been coming to interviews with us saying, oh yeah, I think I'm going to hit Ben. But it was almost... They were willing it into existence and it happened that they were going to get their moment. So for them to be in the in the gym, I think that's the privileged moment for me is that there's story and drama around that as well, because these two are going to face each other next. And they're in this room, quite a small room with each other. Coco is also there chipping in, kind of stirring it a little bit with each of them to, to stoke it up. Yeah, I think Francis, he's still in his mid-twenties, but he's the slightly older brother of Coco and and Ben, and they're bursting onto the scene. No more was that illustrated than the US Open of Coco obviously going on to win it and Ben having a fantastic run there. It's nice to see the kind of camaraderie of the players on tour and capture some of that. That's um, Yeah, they're those magical moments. One thing that we get more of this season are looks inside the coach's box what did that add to the storytelling this season? Kind of getting that chatter courtside in the in the box with coaches and the and the players team. Yeah, I think that's what brings some of the some of the natural drama to it. I think we as viewers watching this show, you're feeling often how the spectators are feeling and how those coaches are feeling. If we've done our job, you're kind of rooting for certain players across the season. And so you feel part of their team. So if you were in the box, you'd be going, come on with them and feeling it and feeling every point. Let's go, hang in there. Come on, come on, Jess. Here we go. Come on. Let's go, Jess. Right back. Those reactions to heighten the drama was really important for us because obviously we use interview throughout the matches of the players to be inside their head and about how they're feeling. But it is an individual sport, but you do have a, a, a team around you. And it was really important for us this year to bring those characters in the players' lives more into the into the show. And so we wanted them to become established characters as well. And so living the points with them, living the matches with them as well, I think it just heightens the the, the feeling while you're watching the tennis play out. Fans at home don't really get a sense of how much players might interact with their coach when they're in the stands. Is that actually an interaction that happens frequently? Because we see it a little bit in your series. Yes. Yeah, it it happens a lot. And I think there was a a, a rule change in the past couple of years where you can now coach from the box. So you never used to be able to to talk to your player and give coaching advice during the matches. But it changed fairly recently. And we saw 
We saw lots of examples of that. And some of it is technical, which is great, but it's also kind of mental and trying to keep people focused and also saying the right thing at the right time. And, you know, knowing when your player needs to be pumped up a little bit or when you need to bring them back down. Um, And I think that's good coaching when you're amplifying where needed and and then also tempering them when when that's needed too. Uh, One of the major narrators in your series is the great... Former world number one, Jim Courier, one of my all-time favorite players. Can you talk about how important his contribution was to your ability to unspool this story? Yeah, it was massive. Jim, Jim's fantastic. I, I love Jim too. Yeah, we met and, and had a really good conversation about what he thought about season one. And I said it you know, straight away, I, I really wanted him to be one of the voices of, of season two. I started off in my career as a pretty emotional player and... I lost enough matches due to that. Tennis is hard enough with the opponent doing things on the other side of the net. If you got to fight yourself as well, that's a real battle. He's an expert in tennis. He's he's lived every part of tennis, so he can talk with authority on all the storylines. He works in tennis still, so he knows all the players and can speak with real credibility about some of the stories we wanted to feature. And that was the most important thing to have have someone who who could credibly talk about the experience of players, what it's like to be a player at the top of the game and really unpick some of what they were going through. I think Jim did a fantastic job at that. So there is this generation of tennis players waiting for their place at the top, it seems. And yet the sport is still being dominated by the greatest player who ever played the game, Novak Djokovic. I don't think anyone denies that he is. And of course, we had Nadal, who's exiting the scene this year. Is it good for the lifeblood of the sport to have one or two champions at the top for two decades while a whole generation of players peak and fail without ever getting their chance to be called the greatest? Yeah, I, I mean, no, I think we've been spoiled as tennis fans to to watch the big three or the big four for a, a generation. I, think, I yeah. think no one would not want to have lived through that era and seen, seen them battling it out. Um, I think it's been fantastic and we're lucky to, to have had that time. As it draws into this transitional phase, like, I'm reluctant to say that it's done because Novak is just still going and going and going and who knows when he will eventually, uh, his powers will wane or he'll decide to stop. But yeah, I think it's also an exciting time. I think I think to have the new younger players coming through as well is an exciting time. And and that was that was something that we really wanted to to explore was who are those players are the next ones that will be there once Novak does decide to step away from from the game. But it seems like he won't be doing that anytime soon, having won three, no. <laughs> three of the four Grand Slams last year. Right. How many times did we think Federer was going to, <laughs> going to leave the game? And he also played forever, right? One theme in this season is the role that, you know, distraction, online commentary can play to get into players' heads. And you show a lot of screen caps of tweets or exes or whatever we're calling them these days. Jessica Pagula is plagued by these accusations of somehow buying her way into being an elite player because her family is wealthy. Her parents own the Buffalo Bills. Isn't it wonky to think that anyone could win even a point against a world-class tennis player just because you're rich? Yeah, it's it's a really silly narrative, but one that Jess has to deal with. And I, I think that was why we wanted to include it in in the series. She 
had lost the quarterfinal in Wimbledon and the journalist had, had kind of published that article kind of being critical of her for her background and um yeah I think I think it's ridiculous like I think as a as a narrative it's it's a ridiculous thing to put on her as is some of the criticism that Maria has faced as well that, that we see in in the episode as well and unfortunately it's something that not just tennis players all kind of top sports people have to deal with unfair criticism that has no basis in in reality and it and it kind of comes with the job even though they just want to play their sport really good and so we wanted to do an episode that kind of shone the light back and said, I hope you watch it and think, is that okay that that these players are treated in that way? Probably not. Look at the additional stress that they have to go through as well as playing tennis at the top level. They have people being critical in this way on on social media and to to overcome that, to win in the face of that, I think is is really admirable. Well, one of the things I, I couldn't help but think either, Darren, is that once you reach the top 10 and you've been there for a little while, like everybody is rich, you know? I mean, she's, of course, comes from family money. But at that point, like everyone has the same advantages. Everyone has the same access to coaches. Everyone has the same sponsors. Everyone has the same plane ride. You know what I mean? Like at that point. That's not even that's that's sometimes not even you don't even need to be top 10. Like you could be top 20. There's there's, right. te- there's teenagers that are starting out on the tour that we wondered whether there was going to be a story of like a, a rookie teenager who's sleeping in their car and having to drive to tournaments. It just doesn't exist. Like the talent is no. identified at such an early age that by the time they're even making their debut on a on an ATP or a WTA event, you know, a 500 or a thousand, they are already sponsored. They're already kind of living the life. They still, they already have the coach that they want and can do really well with. So yeah, I, I think um, it very quickly becomes a level playing field in terms of the resources you have available to, to become the player you want to become. Yeah, I don't think you, you feature a single player who's not wearing a Rolex in this, uh, <laughs> in this yeah. series. Yeah. Of course, they're a sponsor of tennis, as we know. I wonder what came first, the, the chicken or the egg, whether, whether uh, they get the Rolex deals for being in breakpoint or vice versa. I have a question about the U.S. Open women's final because you're following Arena Sabalenka the entire series. And then you have Coco Goff. It's impossible to not root for Coco Goff. It's just impossible, right? She is this ebullient, effervescent, incredibly talented young player. And we meet her in the final episode of the series, but we have been rooting for Arena the entire series. (laughs) Did you find yourself conflicted in that edit? And on on the audience's behalf for whom to root for in that final? Of course, I knew a lot of people knew that Coco wins, but I was conflicted. I was thrilled for Coco when I watched it in real time. But watching your series, I was suddenly like, "Ugh, how was that as the showrunner of the series? I think the fact that you felt conflicted is is kind of job done. I think that was kind of the aim. I think everyone, it was the US Open, I think on the ground there that everyone was rooting for Coco from round one. There wasn't a spare seat in the house. The noise was insane it was fantastic the atmosphere for coco throughout the throughout the tournament but arena we've got a good relationship with from filming season 1 and obviously we'd been through the grand slam win in australia with her earlier in the year and so she had her own aims as well not only to win the us open but to become the the world number 1 this year 
And so it was quite nice as they they both get what they want ultimately. Like Arena did want to win the US Open, but she she still became world number one. So she had something to celebrate. And Coco winning was just a special moment. It transcended the sport, I think, for her to win the US Open. Yeah, it was a, it was a really special moment. So yeah, I think um, being able to feature both of those stories, being able to have Arena become world number one and Coco win the US Open to to round off the series was great for us. And and it's and it's good that people kind of wanted both to win. I think that's that's quite nice as as well if you're if you're rooting for uh, rooting for both. So we've been watching this crowd of 20-something athletes like Francis Tiafo and Taylor Fritz waiting for the legends to step down. And now they've got much younger players like Coco Goff and Ben Shelton coming up behind them. Players who seem to have this whole new range of skills, confidence, as someone says in the doc, nothing to lose. Is there a chance that a whole generation of incredibly talented athletes are just going to get squeezed out between these immovable champions and these unstoppable newcomers? I, d- I don't think they want that to happen. So I think they'll be working really hard for that, for that, <laughs> for that not to be the case. When we've chatted to any of them, any of the players in that kind of middle generation of, of ones who have, have lived through the era of dominance and, and see the young ones coming... They're looking over their shoulder. Like Francis absolutely was was saying, like, Ben's coming. But I think it inspires players to work harder. I think they feel like their time is now. Novak has something to say about that, but they feel like the opportunity is here now. They need to keep pushing. I don't think anyone we spoke to that features in season two or that we even spoke to potentially to feature in season two, I don't think any of them have, have given up kind of feeling like they're already on the scrap heap. So I think I think it just inspires players to work even harder and make this their moment now before it's too late, before the young ones take over. Well, Darren Lovell, Breakpoint Season 2, just as completely bingeable as Breakpoint Season 1. I loved watching every single minute of it. Thank you so much for talking to me about it. It was a real pleasure. I'm glad you liked it. Thanks for having me. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to showrunner Darren Lovell. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, TV shows, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And make sure to follow the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. You Can't Make This Up as a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. 